Good afternoon. I'm excited to be up here. This is my, my first day officially in my new role, and I am very excited for that, very excited to be starting a new series. I don't usually bring water up, but I have a little bit of a scratchy throat, so I'm going to try not to use it, but if I do, you'll have to uh, forgive me. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to say thank you to all of you who made my wife and I meals, uh, who gave us generous gifts. You guys have been uh, just so loving and gracious to us over the last uh, month or so as we were preparing for the new baby and then as we had the new baby. Um, but we, we are very grateful. Uh, we feel very much loved by all of you and it truly was a blessing to us. So thank you all for that. <clears throat> all right, I am very excited to be starting the book of Daniel. It is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's filled with many of the classic Sunday school stories that you heard growing up. The latter end of the book has quite a bit of eschatology and, and end times theology. Uh, it has some of the most specific prophecy of the entire Bible, which in my opinion, forms one of the best defenses for the divine nature of God's word. Whatever area of Bible study excites you the most, I think you're really going to enjoy our time in the book of Daniel. And my prayer is that as we study through this book, we will be convicted and challenged by it, and that as we submit to the truth of this book, that we would be shaped more and more into the likeness of Christ. <clears throat> now, the book of Daniel is also one of the most controversial books in the Bible, and this is due primarily to disagreements over the author and the date which the book was written. And these two things, the author and the date it was written, are extremely important. They dramatically impact how we interpret and understand the book of Daniel. Now, I don't want to start today by running through all of the opinions and arguments for and against the different points of view. Uh, that would take a long time. But I do want to summarize the two dominant views because we're going to touch on this as we go through the book of Daniel. So there's, there's two views. The first one, uh, the first one I'll share with you, is this side claims that the book was written by an anonymous Jewish man sometime around 164 B.C. And according to this view, this author was writing the book to encourage Jewish people in their struggle against their pagan authorities. And under this view, all of the narrative that we read in the book of Daniel, Daniel himself, are all fictional. That they're just stories told to encourage the people of that day. And then all of the prophecy written in Daniel is not actually prophecy. It's historical data who somebody wrote about after the fact and presented it as if it were prophecy. And again, I'm not going to go through all the details here, but, but I would say that the the, the major thrust behind this opinion is that the prophecy of Daniel is too specific. That it is so specific that it had to have been written by somebody who already lived through it and knew what happened. It's a very uh, small view of, of prophecy and faith to think that God could not give a specific prophecy to his prophets and his people. <clears throat> the other view... Uh, the correct view, the view that I hold and that we will interpret this book through is that Daniel, the name, the title character of the book is very real and he is the person that wrote the book. He wrote it sometime around 530 BC and the narratives in this account are true. 
the historical accuracy of this account is true because Daniel was there for those historical events and the prophecy in this book is true and they are extremely specific, very, very detailed, some of the most that you'll find in all of scripture, but they are that way because God chose to reveal those things to Daniel, through Daniel, to his people. And he did so to encourage his people who were living in exile. He wanted them to know that despite their circumstances, God had not abandoned them. And he also wanted to show the world and the rulers of the the major powers in that day that God is the one who is truly sovereign over human history. And that's going to be the overarching theme through the book of Daniel, that God is sovereign over all of human history. And as we move through this book, like I said, we're going to come back and touch on this issue of, of date and authorship because it is very, very important. But for today, we're going to start in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. But before we do that, let me open with just another short word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to gather together this morning. We are so grateful that we can freely open your word and study it together. Lord, we pray that, that as I speak, that your words would be heard. These would not be the opinions of Pastor Garrett, but these would be the truths of your word. We pray that as we study them, that we would be submissive to them and that we would be changed and shaped by them. In Jesus' name, amen. In India, a few years ago, there was a young mother named Kirti. Kirti was one of a few believers in her village and her village began to persecute Kirti, her family, and the other believers in their village started with the, the village elders coming to them and demanding that they abandon their faith in Jesus and that they return to their faith in the Hindu gods. When they refused and they continued gathering together to study God's word, the elders and the other villagers came to Kirti's house and they pulled them from their house and they beat them with sticks and kicked them and punched them and burned their Bibles and took all of Kirti's food and gave it away to the rest of the village. When this didn't deter the faith of Kirti and her family, the elders got angrier and they came back and they broke down the door of the house. They kidnapped her husband, they tortured him for three days and then murdered him. Kirti is still faithfully following Jesus, living in that same village. Things have cooled down, but no arrest was made, no investigation was done regarding her husband and they're probably won't be. Why does God allow things like that to happen to his people? Where is God when his people are persecuted and killed for their faith in God? How could something like this happen to his children who he loves? When hardship or tragedy arrives in our lives, we often ask, Where is God in the midst of that hardship? What is God doing when you receive that heartbreaking diagnosis? Was he unable to heal the loved one that you feel died too young? Why doesn't he stop the mistreatment that you experience at home or at school? Where is God when your marriage is in shambles? Throughout this book, we're going to see repeatedly that God is sovereign over all of human history. And that includes 
the suffering and the hardship that we go through. Now, to be sovereign means to be the, the supreme ruler or king. And what we find throughout God's word is that God is totally and completely sovereign. As the creator of all things, he is over all things, sovereign over all things. He has total and absolute authority to exercise his will over his creation, totally free from any kind of outside restraint. No single event from from microscopic interactions between atoms to the decisions of a king or a world ruler to the movement of the stars and the planets out in outer space, none of that has ever occurred outside the perfect control and sovereignty of God. Now, we're okay with this idea when things go the way we want. When we get a new job, we get a promotion, we meet our spouse, we tell people, you know, it was a God thing. He was just, he put us in the right place at the right time. It was, he was just clearly working through the situation. But when things go wrong, when that hardship arrives, we're a lot less excited about the sovereignty of God. When our world is thrown into chaos, God's people often fail to recognize the sovereign hand of God in those events. And it is difficult. It's difficult to recognize God's sovereignty in those things because it invites difficult and and uncomfortable questions that we may struggle to answer. But what we're going to see in our passage of this afternoon is that God's sovereignty is actually a source of peace and assurance in the midst of hardship. So please open your Bibles with me. As I said, we'll be in Daniel 1, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to get started by reading verses 1 and 2. So you can read along with me in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So we start the book of Daniel during the reign of King Jehoiakim. At this point, there's no northern kingdom of Israel. So if you know your, your Israelite history, you had kingdom of Israel at a certain point after King Solomon, they split. And you, and you had the southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom of Israel. Northern kingdom of Israel has been gone for over 100 years at this point. Assyria was the major power, but about 15 years prior to the book of Daniel, Babylon came in and overthrew Assyria, and now were the the reigning world power. Jehoiakim was the son of another king named Josiah. You guys probably know him. If you don't know the name, you're probably familiar with what he did. He was the one that became king at eight years old. And he had all these great reforms because he found the law of God and he led the people of Judah back to being faithful to the Lord. When the king of Egypt, who was another pretty, pretty strong power in that day, uh, killed Josiah, then his son Jehoahaz took the throne. But Egypt did not like Jehoahaz. So after three months, they took Jehoahaz as prisoner and then Egypt set Jehoiakim on the throne because he could be Uh, pulled as a puppet. He could be used for the benefit of Egypt. So Jehoiakim was not like his father. He did not trust the Lord. He was not faithful to do the, the word of the Lord, the will of the Lord. He was a wicked king. 
He led the people of Judah further and further and further into wickedness and sin and abominations. That's what we learn from 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings. We also know Jehoiakim from the book of Jeremiah. He's, he's kind of the main antagonist in that book. The prophet Jeremiah was, was prophesying that God would judge Israel, judge Judah, rather, using the Babylonians. But if they would repent, all of them would be spared. How do you think Jehoiakim responded? He didn't repent. He tried to kill Jeremiah, and he succeeded in killing one of the Lord's other prophets. So by this point, when, when Babylon comes to lay siege against Jerusalem, the people of Judah have been warned many times. This is coming. God is going to judge you using the wicked nation of Babylon, and they're going to carry you off into exile. So after Babylon defeated Egypt, they quickly moved through that entire territory between Babylon over here, Egypt over here, and they just gobbled up everything. They took over everything, and this, uh, this puts us right uh, where we start the book of Daniel in the year 605 with uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming against the city of Jerusalem. And there would be three or two more sieges of Jerusalem. This is the first one that kind of marks the beginning of exile and the first wave of exiles going off into Babylon. So, through this siege of Jerusalem and the divine sovereignty of God, Nebuchadnezzar establishes his authority over King Jehoiakim and the nation of Judah. And in doing so, he also takes the vessels from God's temple and takes them back to Shiner to place them in his own treasury. Now, Shiner is another name for, uh, for Babylon, but it's interesting because this is a really out-of-date term. This is not the term Daniel should be using here. But I think he's using it intentionally to shed light on the depth of Babylon's wickedness. Because this, this name Shiner, that was the location of the Tower of Babel. It's associated with human pride. This is also mentioned in Zechariah, and Shiner is called a house for wickedness. So in using this ancient term, Daniel's emphasizing that the nation who's coming to take Judah into exile is one even far more wicked than the nation of Judah. And by placing these temple vessels into his own God's temple, Nebuchadnezzar is making a statement. He's proclaiming that the God of Judah has fallen to the gods of Babylon. That the gods of Babylon are greater, that they're stronger than the God of Judah. But he could not be more incorrect. And Daniel's word choice here lets us know that that's the case. Daniel writes that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He delivered him. He placed him into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, as powerful as he was, had zero authority to take Judah. He could only receive what was given to him by the Lord. And Daniel uses the, the name Adonai here for the Lord, which again reflects the, the sovereignty and the authority of the Lord. So what Daniel's doing here, he's writing to this, this group of exiled Jews and he's telling them that the exile they are in right now, this is not the result of Babylon. Yes, they played a part in it, certainly. But this actually happened through the direct action of God. God himself took Judah and placed it into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if we want to talk about moments of, of hardship, of turmoil, of chaos... This is the peak. A, a vicious and wicked pagan army marches on your doorsteps and takes your children away, carries your people away into exile. So Daniel, in this opening two verses, is, is inviting his, 
original readers in the sixth century, but also us today to find peace in the sovereignty of God. Because in the midst of all of that, God was holding that situation. It was God who was orchestrating that God gave them into the hand of Babylon. So if you're taking notes, the first point is that in times of hardship, God's sovereignty provides peace to his people. In times of hardship, God's sovereignty provides peace to his people. So imagine yourself as a faithful Jewish person in this day. You're not one of the ones living in Judah who have given in to the idolatry that the king was pushing, but you have been faithful to follow the ways of God. And now you are living in exile. You've been carried away by the wicked Babylon. You gotta be asking, God, what are you doing? Why are you letting this happen? Have you forgotten us? We're supposed to be your chosen people. But in that one phrase, the Lord gave Jehoiakim Daniel's encouraging his readers that this exile, as difficult as it is, it's a part of God's plan. It is God's doing. It was a part of his plan to judge the unrepentant wickedness of his people. But that also means that this situation, as crazy as it was, was not for a moment outside of God's control. It never got away from him. God never forgot the promises he made to his people. He had not abandoned them. <clears throat> How many of us have asked similar questions of God in the last year and a half? Redemption Bible Church started in the, the aftermath of, of a pretty ugly and painful church split. Now, I, I don't want to rehash those details. We're not going to talk about blame. We're not going to talk about who was wrong, who was right, who did what. We're not going there. We're not doing anything like that. But, but in the last year and a half, without having a lead pastor, we never really addressed this as a church together. And, and again, I don't want to revisit, I don't want to rekindle anger or, or frustration, but I know that there are some in this room who are still carrying wounds from that split. And the truth of this passage, of this book, provides a, a much-needed perspective as we process that still even a year and a half later. That was a painful season. Very painful for us as a church family. And I know many of you are asking, what's happening? Why is God allowing this to happen? I had those conversations with, with many of you. Even in the last couple of months, I've had those conversations with people asking why, or what if this, or what if that, and church, if I can be vulnerable, there were times where I asked those same questions. But church, even then, God was sovereign. God was totally in control. Never surprised. That situation, though painful and terribly sad, was never outside of his control or his grasp. It was disorienting, confusing, but God never once looked at that situation and, and said, sorry guys, this, this got a little bit out of hand. We gotta, we gotta figure this out here. Even something as tragic as the crumbling of a local church ultimately is a part of the sovereign plan and working of God. And if you don't believe me, look at what we just read. Judah was God's chosen people and they were taken into exile by the most wicked nation on the planet. That is the split of all splits. 
This isn't just people splitting from people. This is God's people splitting from God. And yet, God was sovereign. It was his plan. It was his will for those things to take place. A painful part of his plan, but a part of that plan nonetheless. And if even that, the exile of God's chosen people was a part of God's plan, then we ought to see our own season of hardship in the exact same light. And I want to be clear here, the point is not that we look back on that situation and we celebrate the, the sins that led to a church split any more than Daniel would look back and celebrate the idolatry and the disobedience that led to Judah's exile. The point is that God's sovereignty is a source of peace for God's people when things spiral into chaos. Daniel's telling these exiles, yes, we are in the thick of it. Things are bad. Things are outside of our control, but things are very much in God's control. When everything around us is feeling unstable or feeling out of control, we can have peace because it is firmly within the grasp of the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, Lauren and I were outside. Uh, We were playing with with Maddie. This was pre-Ezra. We didn't have him yet, so Lauren was very pregnant. So she was sitting on the porch, and I was kind of walking around the driveway as Maddie was uh, coloring with her chalk. And we have a guy in our neighborhood, and he's a motorcycle guy. And he, he wants to make sure that our whole neighborhood knows he's a motorcycle guy. He wants to know that everybody knows he's riding his motorcycle. So when he gets out and starts riding, anytime he, he, he can, he just revs that engine. He, he gets it as loud as he possibly can. It's like he thinks there's a link between like motorcycle loudness and the respect of your neighbors, uh, but he's only hurting public opinion of motorcycles. It doesn't do, doesn't do him any favors. But anyways, this guy rolls uh, by our driveway while Maddie's using her chalk, and he revved his engine so loud, and it scared the daylights out of her. Immediately drops the chalk. The look on her face was so sad. She drops it. She runs to me instantly, and so I picked her up as I should, and I reassured her, it's, it's okay. It's just a loud noise. There's nothing wrong. You're okay. And it was, it was kind of cute for me because she don't really run to Lauren, but she ran to me, so I was pretty excited about it. But... <laughs> When my daughter gets scared, she usually doesn't understand the situation. There's almost never a real cause for concern. But when she gets scared, immediately she looks for me or my wife because she knows we got this. We got this under control. She can come to us and find that comfort. She can come to us and find peace. That should be our disposition when we find ourselves in those times of hardship, those times of tragedy or heartbreak. When a loved one dies, when you get laid off from work, when your own sin creates a mess in your life, immediately we should look to our Heavenly Father. We may not always understand the situations, we may not know why things are happening, but God does. And there is peace to be had in the sovereignty of God. How encouraging is it for us to know that when the situation is totally out of control, God's still in control. Let's keep reading and read the remainder of our text this afternoon, verses three through seven. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, 
endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So Ashpenaz here is described as the, the chief eunuch. He probably wasn't literally a eunuch. That, is a, that word is also used to just talk about the chief officials. Um, and so he's probably just the chief of the court officials here. And as such, he was tasked by the king with rounding up the best and brightest of the royal and noble families of Judah to come and serve him in his court. But each of those individuals had to meet very strict qualifications. And these verses highlight the standard that was required to stand in the king's court. And it also highlights the extent of the indoctrination they were supposed to receive. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wanted young men because it's much easier to train a young man who's developing his, is still developing, finding his way than it is to uh, train an older man who's set and stubborn in his ways. Uh, they would also be able to, to serve for quite a bit longer. And on top of being young, they had to be physically attractive. Taking from the royal and noble families, though, that would kind of ensure a baseline education. They would, it would be an easier jump for them to go into the Babylonian courts than it would be for a, a young man from a poor farming family with little to no education. But the three qualifications uh, that are most important uh, are the ones that have to do with the intelligence of these individuals. That is what Nebuchadnezzar is concerned with more than anything else. And we see those three qualifications in the middle. And they're not highlighting different aspects of intelligence, but they're kind of together saying the same thing, just placing the emphasis on the fact that these kids, they need to be wise, they need to be able to learn, they need to be able to, to study, and they need to be smart. So more literally, these qualifications could be comprehend all kinds of wisdom, to be a knower of knowledge, and to be an understander of knowledge. The point is that they're educated, they're smart, and they're able to learn new things because they're going to have to learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And Chaldeans, that's another name for uh, the Babylonians. It'll be used a little bit differently later, but here it's just referring to the Babylonian people. Now, this learning of literature and language was not a a simple few classes for them to pick up a couple of things. Uh, this was far more extensive than that. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to take these, these young Jewish boys and turn them into Babylonian wise men and magicians. These young men are being thrown into a world vastly different than their own. And their study would include the Babylonian language, but also their customs, the polytheistic religious beliefs, their superstitions, their magical practices and sorcery, the charms, astrology, signs and dream lists, historical data, legal data, all kinds of stuff. They had to be experts in a very broad range of subjects in order to serve as a counselor in the king's court. <clears throat> Learning all this new stuff, as you can imagine, would be a little bit overwhelming. That's a lot to tackle in three years, especially when it's totally foreign to where you came from. But add to the fact that this is immediately after they've been kidnapped and taken away from everything they have ever known. 
and that almost everything on the list I just shared was sinful in God's eyes makes it a little bit more overwhelming and a little bit more difficult. The king probably saw this education and the food he was giving them as, as a generous privilege for them. But all of this stuff is off limits for a faithful Jewish person. So it would only add to the hardship that Daniel and his friends are facing. So this indoctrination program would run for three years. At the end of that three years, they would stand before the king in his courts. And that, that stand before the king is a uh, figure of speech for, for serving in his court. They would act as his officials and counselors. And to really drive home the point that the king's goal here was indoctrination and not education, he strips them of their Hebrew names and gives them Babylonian names. And this is noteworthy because each of the Hebrew names that these young men bear has a connection to the God of Israel. For example, Daniel means God is my judge. But the name he was given, Belteshazzar, means Bel protects his life. And Bel is another title for Marduk, one of the chief Babylonian gods. The same is true for each of his three friends. Each name bears some connection with the one true God and is swapped for a name connected with the pagan gods. This is the poster child for hardship and chaos. It doesn't get more chaotic and terrifying than this. These are kids, probably around 15, 16, 17 years old, ripped away from their families and their friends, from their home, from everything that they have known and placed in a foreign country and into a re-education and indoctrination program. But through all of that, God was working. God was working through Daniel. That's what he wants us to see here. And I know it's a lot easier for us to see God's sovereign hand in other people's suffering than it is for our own. Right? Put yourself in their shoes. What if, what if it was you who was taken to another foreign country? Or maybe it was your children, your teenage children, ripped away from you and sent to a foreign land. Would you still recognize the sovereignty of God in those events? Church, God does not promise that we will not endure hardship or suffering. He never promises that we won't suffer as a result of somebody else's sin or mistakes. That's what's happening here with Daniel. This was not brought on by his own sin. Daniel was a faithful man. He was a righteous man. The prophet Ezekiel, he was a contemporary of Daniel. He started his ministry about 15 years after chapter one of Daniel. But Ezekiel mentions Daniel twice. And I want to read one of those verses. It's Ezekiel 14, 14. You guys can follow along on the screen. You can try to turn there, but it's short. So you might not have enough time. Uh, But it says this, and this is uh, Ezekiel's writing about the coming judgment of God against Jerusalem. And this is what he says. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. So Daniel is listed among Noah and Job. Noah was the single person considered righteous and worth saving when God flooded the earth because it was so wicked. Job was described as blameless and upright, one of very few people in the Bible who are given that description. And Daniel is listed among these men. And these three are painted as the example of righteousness. Now, obviously, they're, they're human and they're sinful, but as far as human ability goes, they are the example of righteousness. So Daniel was suffering as a result of idolatry and sin from the people of Judah, but not his own. 
Despite the sins of Judah, he was innocent. But Daniel's telling his readers that even in this suffering, God is sovereign. Even when the innocent suffer, God is sovereign over that suffering. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will not protect you from suffering every time in this life. Sometimes we go through that suffering. But as followers of Jesus, as children of God, you can find peace in God's sovereignty. We also find assurance in God's sovereignty. That's number two, if you're taking notes. In times of hardship, God's sovereignty provides assurance to his people. The beautiful thing about hardship in our lives is that because God is sovereign, none of that hardship is ever wasted. None of it is without a purpose. God is sovereignly moving and ordering all things according to his perfect wisdom, and that includes your suffering and my suffering. And the hardship we experience is being used by God for our good and for his glory. This is true in the New Testament as well. Romans 8, a bunch of you guys probably have a favorite verse in Romans 8. But he tells us that God sovereignly uses all things for the good of those that love him in order to make them more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that the suffering we endure while following Jesus is preparing us for eternity with Jesus. Let's consider the life of Daniel again here. He is thrown into what all of us would agree is a terrifying and horrible situation. But how necessary was that situation for him to serve the way God intended him to serve? In order to carry out his ministry, the ministry God had set him apart for, he had to be taken from his home. He had to go through this indoctrination program. If he didn't, he would not have been competent and able to serve in the king's court. Now, Daniel never caved in that process. Despite the hardship, he trusted in God's sovereign hand. He remained faithful, but he did embrace and and live in in a pagan culture to the extent that it wasn't sinful. He learned their ways. He learned their beliefs, but he never indulged in them. And you'll see as we go through the book, Daniel and his friends, they they do adopt this new culture in all of the ways except those which would have been sinful. The situation, while difficult, while terrifying, while painful, while confusing, was necessary to get Daniel where he needed to be, to develop the skills he needed to successfully witness and prophesy in the heart of the Babylonian Empire. Because of what Daniel endured, he was used as a witness for God before the most powerful men in the world. Daniel's the one who shows these kings that the God of Israel is the only true sovereign. That assurance is a sweet thing because it's far easier for us to endure difficult things if we know that difficult thing has a purpose. A good example of this is running. Running is good for you. We all hate it, but it's good for you. It keeps you fit. It keeps you healthy. If running did not produce a positive change to our bodies, nobody would run. If pushing yourself to exhaustion did not enable you to run longer and faster the next time, you wouldn't do it because there would be no purpose to it. I know you guys are like, well, I don't run anyway, so I I get it. I don't either. Um, But no one would do it if there was no benefit from it. But because that suffering 
that that running causes, because it produces something worthwhile, that suffering is far more palatable. And when we suffer in this life, God is not gone. He has not abandoned us. He's not gone silent. He is near to us. He is sustaining us, and he is working through that hardship. We can be at peace because we know that he is in control no matter how bad things get. And we have assurance that despite how bad those things are, they're not without a purpose. They are being used for God's glory and for our good. They will develop greater spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness in us. So back to our situation. We endured a difficult season as a church. It caused us all to look around and, and ask, why? Where was God in that season? And the answer is, look around at what God is doing now, a year and a half later. Look around at the way that we are making inroads into the community to share the gospel with them. The answer to the question, where was God in that time? He was at work. He was working in the middle of that mess. Was it messy? Yeah. Was it painful? Yep. Was it without a purpose? Absolutely not. God was working through it to bring about Redemption Bible Church. And if God can work so beautifully through Daniel's hardship and through such an ugly church split, certainly he is doing the same in the hardships you're enduring in your own life. And knowing this to be true, we can remain unshaken even in the most difficult circumstances. Because God is sovereign, we can have peace and assurance in times of hardship. That's the big idea of this passage today. Because God is sovereign, we can have peace and assurance in times of hardship. When we face hardship in life, peace is found in the knowledge that God holds that situation firmly in his grasp. The sovereignty of God provides assurance to us because we know that that hardship is doing something we know that God is putting it to good use to bring us into greater spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness and to bring more glory to himself. So I want you all to consider this in your own life. Maybe you're enduring hardship at work. Your boss is a jerk. He doesn't appreciate the work that you do. Everybody else gets the credit you deserve. But instead of growing bitter and complaining about it, Consider that God is working in that. Consider God's sovereign hand in that situation. Because could it be that just as God used Daniel's hardship to prepare him for ministry, that God is using your hardship to mature you? Or maybe to use that hardship so that you can be a witness to your jerk of a boss, who in this time as you are displaying Christ-like character in the midst of this unfair treatment, God, meanwhile, is softening his heart to the gospel. Parents of unfaithful children, those of you with difficult family members, students struggling with friends at school, whoever's finding themselves mistreated because of their faith in Jesus, anyone enduring any form of hardship, consider how God is sovereignly working in your situation to bring about greater spiritual maturity. Don't let those circumstances produce a bitterness in you. Let them drive you to a greater dependence on the only one who is sovereign. Daniel explains to his readers 
the sovereign hand of God is in, in his own suffering so that his readers would recognize God's sovereign hand in their own suffering. Because God is sovereign, we can endure hardship with peace and assurance that God per, is perfectly in control and that he is working even in the worst of circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is humbling to think of your sovereignty, to think that you know all things, that you are ordering all things, and that you are working in all things. Lord, and I pray for this church. I pray that each of us would recognize whatever we're going through, that you are sovereignly working in this, whether it's the good or the bad season for us. We thank you that no matter what life throws at us, there is peace to be found in the sovereignty of God. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by this as we step back into some of those situations that many of us are experiencing even now. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.